Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This weekend, we are going back to 2014 for a show we did on September 1st of that year. I hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Bob Bro, welcome to Boomer Boulevard. Man, I have got a cold, as you can probably tell from my voice, and outside it is stormy. Lots of lightning and thunder tonight and some heavy downpours, so if we get interrupted, that's, uh, or if you hear that in the background, that's why. I'm recording this on August 29th, and I guess the show will premiere uh, in the next couple days on Labor Day or before, depending on what uh, outlet you're listening to this on. But we're glad to have you aboard. My wife and I spent the previous week in uh, Oregon attending the wedding of our oldest son, Seth, and his beautiful bride, Laureen Feeney. And I'll have a few comments about Oregon and what a beautiful, beautiful uh, wedding this was. What a gorgeous location. My goodness. What's up tonight? Well, we've got an episode of Dragnet from 1955, an episode of Barbara's Brooks from 1955, and an episode of uh, Gunsmoke from 1955. So that's the lineup this week, and we're going to get started in just a minute. Very good to have you with us. Like I said, I'm fighting a little bit of a cold, so if I hope you can put up with my voice. We uh, we spent, uh, oh, I guess about six days, five or six days in uh, Oregon. What a beautiful, beautiful state Oregon is. Oregonians try to keep quiet how beautiful their state is because they don't want a lot of people moving in, but <laughs> they're not being very successful because people still love to move into Oregon. But our youngest, or our middle son, excuse me, Jeremy, moved there about three years ago. 
and his older brother Seth and uh, Lorene had been out a number of times, and and, uh, once they got engaged and were going to get married, they wanted a destination wedding. And they thought about Upper Michigan. Uh, Lorene is originally from the Detroit area. Seth, of course, is from here in St. Louis and also was in California the first uh, six or seven years of his life. But he now lives in Chicago. He and Lorene live in Chicago. So they had, you know, looked at the Caribbean, looked at, at different places. But they went out to visit Jeremy in Oregon. And uh, I think Lorene occasionally goes out there on business. Anyway, they were both fell in love with Oregon. And they found a place just across the Columbia River in a town called White Salmon, Washington. And there, sitting up on a hill, it was a beautiful vineyard. And this vineyard overlooked a beautiful valley. And then in the background was Mount Hood. And it was absolutely gorgeous. The vineyard, the main building of the vineyard, sat back and there was this huge, beautiful green lawn. And that is where the wedding took place. And they set up the white chairs in a semicircle. And there was this breathtaking backdrop of Mount Hood in this beautiful valley. And then after the wedding, and they exchanged vows, which were very, very touching. They wrote their own vows. That's what these kid, kids, look, they're both in their 30s. <laughs> oh, well. There was not a dry eye. And I'll, I'll have to be honest. I, my son comes by it honestly because his old man is a crier. I don't just cry at old yeller. You know, I cry at uh, Toy Story. I mean, anything can make me cry. Carol and I both did some crying, and Seth teared up a couple times taking his vows. And they saluted the audience and their good friends. Oh, it was just, it was very touching. The whole thing was just very touching. Beautiful setting. And they had a beautiful reception, a sit-down dinner. Uh, we got in there several days ahead of time and spent uh, the first night with our son Jeremy, who, of course, was in the wedding. Jeremy works at a um, very interesting place. It's called the Kennedy School, and it's owned by the uh, couple of brothers there. Now I can't think of their names. That's terrible. Maybe before the end of the show, I'll think of it. But they own a series of restaurants and unique entertainment venues like that, hotels. And they had taken an old school that had been closed, I guess, for 20 years and was about to get the wrecking ball. And they went in and bought it and converted it into a, a restaurant. I think there's two or three bars in there. They they created a movie theater that shows retrospective films. They have hotel rooms there. Jeremy arranged for us to stay in, in one of the hotel rooms, which was like an old classroom. Very, very impressive. And uh, Portland is just such a beautiful city. It's surrounded by mountains. But it's along the Columbia River, and then the Willamette River runs off the Columbia and runs right down through town. Just a gorgeous, gorgeous area. Seth and Lorene uh, rented a home, a house, a huge house that sat up on this hill overlooking the river. And it had, I think, five or six bedrooms. And several of their old college friends, the Lorene's closest friends and Seth's closest friends, with their respective mates all came and stayed there for four or five days. And they just really had a wonderful time. So there you go. It's uh, 
really nice to see your kids happy and uh, getting married and and the joy that they had and the the family relationship there's just nothing more important than family there's no question about it it was just a very nice experience all the way around the only bad experience was the long flight getting there and back and uh, that's where we got our colds Anyway, it's time to get started now with our first show, and up right away is Dragnet. This week, we're going to start off with that iconic police procedural show that just really started everything, and that's Dragnet. This one was originally broadcast on April the 5th in 1955 over NBC, and a pretty good episode, pretty good episode. No, not a lot of bells and whistles in this one, just police procedure, but it was good. It's good to, to watch him, and of course, I love the... Uh, banter back and forth between uh, Frank and Joe. This time Frank's talking about skiing and Joe calls him out on it. It's kind of funny. Um, Interesting comment in here about transistor radio. See if you pick it up. Also, Dragnet, uh, I think, kind of fell into a trap. They wanted every show to be called The Big Something. And now, you know, that works fine if it's like, you know, The Big Murder or... uh, the big arrest or the big sting you know yeah that's good but when you do like four or five hundred episodes after a while it it gets a little old you know it's like the big can or the big shoe or the big smelly sock i'm just making those up this one tonight is not (laughs) not too far removed it's called the big no tooth here comes dragnet Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a robbery detail. You get a call that a downtown hotel has been held up by a bandit who carries a sawed-off shotgun. Your job, find him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Sunday, October 9th. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith, the boss, chief of detectives, Thad Brown. My name's Friday. We are on our way out from the office, and it was 2.06 a.m. when we got to the corner of Cinnabar Street and Grand Avenue, the Brenton Hotel. Well, I, I just done what he told me. I figured there was no point in getting myself all roiled up. Didn't see where that would be helping matters. Yes, sir. Whatever he said, I done it. Hey, you fellas looking for a room? Police officers, this is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Are you from robbery? That's right. 
Roberts, 1F16. Mm-hmm. You answered the call? Yeah. The description's out. Metro's sending a couple of cars to help us look for the suspect. All right, good. Anything else I can do for you? No, not right now. Okay. I'll take care of the report. Thank you. We'll check with you. Bye. You know, I sure would have been wrong about you two. What's that? I never would have guessed you was cops. Oh. Salesman. That's what I'd put you boys down for. I see. Ladies ready to wear. Guess I would have missed the boat this time. Yes, sir. Would you tell us about the holdup, please? I thought them other officers already let you in on it. We'd like to get the details from you if we could. Oh, oh. Well, I ain't got nothing better to do. Stuck here till 7 a.m., anyhow. What if we could have your name? Boxer. Tom Boxer. That's B-O-X-E-R? That's it, you know, just like a dog. Uh What time did the robbery take place? Oh, 40, 45 minutes ago, along around 1.20, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Wasn't 1.30 yet, I'm sure of that. Oh? See, I was listening to the radio, Stan Swift. Who's that? You know Stan Swift. He's on every night, midnight till six, seven nights a week. Oh, yeah. The nights go swifter with Swift. (laughs) That's how he puts it. Uh Gives a time signal every hour and every half hour. Remember him giving the 1 a.m.? Hadn't given the 1.30 yet, so it must have been around uh, 1.20 when this fella come into the hotel. What'd he do? Walked up to the desk. Yes, sir. I didn't even know he was there. Well, not at first. Mm-hmm. I was sitting down in that chair, kind of had my back away from the door. <clears throat> didn't hear him neither on account of being plugged in. What was that? To my radio. Oh, I see. This here gadget, see? See? Mm-hmm. It's into your ear, like like so. Yeah, mm-hmm. I understand. Let you listen without waking nobody up. Other end attaches to the set, like like so. Mm-hmm. You mean that's a radio? Mm-hmm. Sure is. You ain't never seen this kind before, huh? No, sir. Transistor. Oh. That's what they call it. Regency transistor. Ain't got no tubes. That's what makes it so small, you see? Carry it around in your pocket, if you have a mind to. I see. Real good tone, though. Plenty of volume if you want to let it out. Yes, sir. Now, if you just tell us about the robbery, would you, Mr. Boxer, please? Well, ain't that what I've been doing? Yes, sir. You said this man walked up to the desk? That is right. Maybe stood there a couple of seconds before I sensed him. Mm-hmm. Unplugged myself, got up and asked him if he wanted a room. He said he did, uh, single. Yes, sir. Checked the boxes to see what was vacant. Had my back to him while I was checking. Didn't notice him opening up his satchel. Mm-hmm. Must have been carrying the gun there in the satchel. Anyway, when I turned around to register him, I found myself staring into the barrel. Shotgun it was. All right, go ahead, please. This is a stick-up, he said. Do what I tell you and you won't get hurt. I didn't know whether he meant business or not, and I sure didn't aim to test him to find out. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir, I said. You just tell me what you want and I'll do it. Yeah. I ain't no coward, you understand, but I ain't no hero neither, especially when I'm facing up to a shotgun. Sure. Like the man says, only real heroes a dead hero. Yes, sir. Me, i just as soon go on living. That's why I've done exactly what he told me. Give him the money from the cash drawer here. See? Every penny. Hand it all over to him. Didn't try to hold none back. Yes, sir. How much was there? Fifty, sixty dollars, somewhere in between there. Mm-hmm. What happened then? Well, he told me to empty my pockets, lay the stuff on the desk. You did, huh? I emptied them. I didn't have more than three or four dollars in change. He scooped it up with the other money, shoved it into his satchel. I see. Then he said for me to come out from behind this desk, walked me over to the elevator, told me to get inside and ride up to the top floor. That'd be the third. You see, the hotel's three stories high. Yes, sir, I understand. I suppose I could have got off on number two. He would have known the difference. Floor indicator down there don't work. Mm-hmm. But uh, I didn't see where I'd be gaining anything by it, so I'd done what he told me. I rode up to three. How long did you wait there? 
Oh, till I seen him leave the hotel. Mm-hmm. From the window end of the third floor hall. Did he drive away? No, just strolled off. I don't think he had a car. I see. Turned the corner, and that was the last of him. Mm-hmm. And what did you do then? Took the elevator back down, called the police, listened to the radio while I was waiting. Yes, sir. Figured I might as well take it easy till the cops come. Wasn't more than five minutes before them officers walked in. A little while later, you fellas walked in. I guess you know when that was. Yes, sir. Now, Mr. Boxer, could you tell us what he looked like? Huh? The man who held you up. Oh, well, I told them other fellas, the ones wearing uniforms, they said they'd send out his description. Yes, sir, we understand. We'd like to have it, too. Okay. Oh, young fella, 25 to 30, I judge. No. Big Bill, a little bigger than you. Mm. Not as big as you, though. Uh, somewhere in between. Yes, sir. Black hair. Didn't catch the color of his eyes. Well, that's about all. How was he dressed? Oh, suit. Stripe in it, I think. Maybe dark blue with a gray stripe. Bow tie. Kind of dapper. Mm-hmm. Have any scars? <laughs> Not where you'd notice them. He said he carried the gun in a satchel, is that right? Must have been where he had it. Didn't actually see him take it out, though. Uh, back was to him at the time. How big was the satchel? Oh, medium sized, about oh, so long. Any initials on it? No, not so far as I can recall. What about the gun? How big was it? This long, maybe. Mm-hmm. Single barrel, sawed off. Could you tell the make? Well, I ain't no expert on shotguns. No. Would you know this man if you saw him again? <laughs> sure, I'd be a fool not to. Why? I'd like to have you come down to the city hall in the morning, Mr. Boxer, if you would. But what for? I want to show you some photographs, see if we can pick them out. You mean this morning? Yes, sir, if you would. It's Sunday. Yes, sir, that's right. You fellas work on Sunday? Well, we're not the only one. But what do you mean? He did. Frank and I checked with the patrol officers who had answered Mr. Boxer's call. They told us that a search of the immediate vicinity had failed to turn up anyone who answered the suspect's description. 3.16 a.m., the crew from the crime lab finished up their investigation. There were no useful fingerprints or other physical evidence in the lobby of the hotel. 7.38 a.m., we checked the suspect's M.O. and the description with the stats office. They came up with 18 possibles. We pulled the packages from R&I and took them back to the office. Well, looks like it might rain. Pretty early in the season, isn't it? Well, the paper says we're going to have a wet winter. All right. Real good for skiing, I guess. Yeah. That's what you need. Lots of moisture. Heavy snow. You never go skiing. No. Well. Well, I thought about taking it up a couple of years ago. Faye blew her stack. Mm. Said I'd probably break my neck first time I tried. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think she worries more about me than she does about the kids. Mm -hmm. Good morning, gents. Oh, hi, sir. Hope I haven't kept you waiting. No, sir, not a bit. How are you today, Mr. Boxy? Sleepy. Usually get a couple of hours catnap during my shift. Kind of missed out on it last night. Yes, I'm afraid you did. Even after all you fellows left, somehow I just couldn't doze off. Listen to Stan Swift till 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. I'll bet you I know more about Egypt than a real live Egyptian. Well, you got them pictures you wanted to show me? Yes, sir, right over here. It's all right if I sit down? Yeah, go right ahead. Here you are. This the pile? Yes, sir, take your time. Look at each one as long as you like. Okay. <laughs> Pretty tough bunch of boys. Yeah. No, it's not him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Nope. Oh, hey. Wait a minute. There is a resemblance. He looks something like this one here. Is it the same man, Mr. Boxer? Oh, no, 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 no. Not the same. Yeah. Similar type, though. Does that help you any? Might. 
You want to go through the others? Sure, sure. Now, you see this fellow? Yes, sir. He's not the same type at all. No. The other one I pointed out was, you You can see the difference yourself. Yes, sir. Ah, not him. Not him either. Nope. Oh, now, oh, this is closer to him. Sir? Not as close as that one, the other one, but but closer. Yes, sir. Now we're getting further away. No, no, it's none of these. Is that all you got? Afraid so. Well, it's the best I can do for you. Now, this one here, the one I pointed out first. Yeah, we understand, but it's not the same man, you see. Well, I never said it was. Just said they were similar. Yes, sir. Well, I'm sorry we wasted your time. Oh, it wasn't no waste of time, not as far as I'm concerned. Huh? Remember my telling you about how I try to guess what different folks do for a living? Yeah. Looking at all these pictures will be a big help from now on. How's that? I'll know a crook when I see one. On the following Sunday, October 16th, two more hotels were held up by a shotgun bandit. Both robberies occurred during the early morning hours. Both hotels were small. The description of the suspect and his M.O. indicated that he was the same man who had robbed the Brinton Hotel. Frank and I continued our investigation, but we failed to turn up any leads. During the next week, all hotels in the downtown area were alerted. Sunday, October 23rd, the night manager of the Schaefer Arms near the corner of Broadway and Clay reported that he had been robbed at approximately 3.30 a.m., he confirmed the bandit's description and M.O., but was unable to add anything new. The next morning, October 24th, we had a conference with Chief Brown. Doesn't sound to me like you're any closer to him than we were two weeks ago. What do you got? Well, not much. Let's have it. Description? Pretty general, isn't it? Afraid so. What else? Well, now he's only worked one area. Yeah? All the hotels are within a mile of Pershing Square. Nothing to keep him from spreading out, is there? So far, he hasn't used a car. You figure he pulled these jobs on foot? Looks that way. Then he must live downtown somewhere. Mm-hmm. Anything about the hotels that might give us a tip-off on his next move? Yeah, they're all small, only one person on duty. Uh-huh. We've marked all the possibles here in a map. You want to take a look at it? Yeah. Okay, right here. These are the ones he's already hit. Here, here, over here. Tight little group? Yeah. These circles indicate all the other hotels of a similar nature in the downtown area. Uh-huh. Only works on Sundays, huh? That's right. What do you got planned for this Sunday? Well, we'll stake out as many as we can. We've asked Metro to give us a hand. We figure we'll have enough men to cover about, oh, 20 likelies, maybe. We plan to run the stakes from midnight till 6 a.m. When he hits, it's usually between 2 and 4. How's it sound to you? About all we can do. Yeah. I want you both stay on this between now and Sunday, see if you can't pick up a lead somewhere. We will. Informants been able to give you anything? Nope. They holding out? No, I don't think so. I don't think they know who he is. Well, maybe the stakes will work. Maybe. Wait a minute. Let me see that map again. Right here. Funny. See here? No. You said these are the places he's already robbed? That's right. All right together. Draw a line from one to the other and you'd have a square. Yeah. What's this right in the middle of the square? That's the Argus Hotel on South Broadway. That's one he hasn't hit yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Looks like your best bet then. Yeah, that's the way we figured it. Who's going to cover it Sunday? Well, Smith and I thought we'd take it. That's a coincidence. Hmm? Just who I was going to suggest. During the rest of the week, we continued our investigation, but we failed to turn up any additional information about the suspect. A few minutes before midnight on Saturday, October 29th, men from Metro and Robbery Division staked out 22 locations in the downtown area. Sunday, October 30th, 12.05 a.m., Frank and I entered the lobby of the Argus Hotel and we walked up to the desk. Sorry, we're full up. Like talk to the manager if we can. I said we're full up. We're police officers. Huh? This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. Oh. Could we see the manager? 
I'm the manager. You own this hotel? Me and my husband. Well, maybe we better talk to him. Go ahead. If you can find him. Isn't he here? Nope. Would you know where he is? Nope. Not getting drunk, probably. I see. I work nights. He works days. He don't tell me where he goes at night. I don't tell him what I do during the day. That's our arrangement. Mm-hmm. It don't make for a real happy marriage, but it keeps us from killing each other. Yes, ma'am. Is there somebody who could take over for you here tonight? Nope. Now, you're sure your husband didn't say where he was going? We don't talk. Oh. He wants me to know something, he writes me a note, leaves it on the desk, and I do the same for him. I see. We ain't exchanged no words for the last two years. Uh-huh. Saves a lot of wear and tear on the nervous system. He never said nothing worth listening to anyway. I see. Well, what do you fellas want? Oh, ma'am, several hotels have been held up downtown lately. No. Yeah. You were warned about it, weren't you? George was warned, left me a note. I see. Well, there's a chance he might come here tonight. If he does, I'm ready for him. Hmm? Got me a gun. Pistol. Keep it in the cash drawer, see? Yes, ma'am. I know how to use it, too. He shows up. I'm ready for him. Is there some place we could wait in case he does? You don't have to. I don't need no protection. Told you. I've got a gun. Yes, ma'am. So's he. Argus finally agreed to let us stake out the hotel. She showed us into a small room off the lobby. From there, Frank and I could see anybody who entered. During the next four hours, only two people requested accommodations. They were both middle-aged men, and neither one of them in any way resembled the suspect's description. What time you got, Joe? Mm, see, five after four. Huh? Latest they ever pulled a job was 3.30. Yeah. Maybe he decided to lay off tonight. Maybe. Argus Hotel. Who? Oh, oh, yeah. Hey, you guys in there? Yes, ma'am. Somebody wants you on the phone. Okay, I'll be right over. In the booth. Yes, ma'am. Friday. No, wait a minute. Okay, what's that address? Yeah, I got it, thanks. Right. What's up? Looks like we staked out the wrong places. Yeah. All night cafe on South Main. The owner was held up. He's pretty badly wounded. Yeah. Sawed off shotgun. Frank and I drove over to the Joplin Grill at the corner of Main and Vincent Place. We talked to the patrol car officers who had discovered Fred Joplin's body. They told us Joplin was unconscious when they found him. They said that they'd call an ambulance and that he'd been taken to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. We telephoned the hospital and asked them to be notified as soon as the victim was available for questioning. 4.42 4.42 a.m., Lieutenant Lee Jones and the crew from the crime lab began their investigation. Frank and I went back to the office. October 30th, 10.17 a.m., Georgia Street reported that Joplin had recovered consciousness. We drove down there and talked to Dr. Sebastian. He said that Joplin was suffering from shock and loss of blood. He also said that Joplin's right shoulder was severely lacerated and that there was a possibility the arm would have to be amputated. 10.46 a.m., we interviewed the victim. Sat down on the stool and asked for a cup of coffee. Yes, sir. I turned around, picked up the Silex, started filling the cup. Uh-huh. Time I was finished, he'd got his gun out. Guess he had it in that bag he's carrying. Yes, sir. He told me it was a stick-up. Said to give him the money from the register, he'd shoot me. Mm-hmm. I didn't say nothing. Just stood there, kind of staring at him. Yeah. He raised up his gun. Shotgun it was. Yes, sir. I mean business, mister. That's what he said next. I mean business. I see. I still didn't say nothing. Just stood there with that cup of coffee in my hand. Start moving, he said. Boy sounded real low and mean. 
Didn't seem to match his face. Sort of a pleasant-looking fella. Voice would mean, though. Yeah. Started gesturing with that shotgun, pointing toward the register. That's when I let fly. Hmm? With a cup of coffee. Smashed it right into his face. I see. Must have given quite a jolt. Yes, sir. Didn't keep him from shooting me, but it sure wrecked his aim some. Leastways, I'm still here. Don't remember nothing after that. I see. Sure, he'd him a good one, though. Them coffee cups ain't the lightest things in the world. Yes, sir, I understand. Not to mention the coffee itself. Scalding hot it was. Mm-hmm. Right here. That's where I belted him. Right in the jaw. Used to be a ball player, you know. Is that right? Wasn't a pro exactly, but I had a first-rate pitching arm. Lefty Joplin, that's what they used to call me. Back in Junction City, Kansas, it was. Mm-hmm. Local merchants sponsored our team. Pitched 16 winners one season. Best record in the league. Yes, that's very good. Well, I ain't lost all my technique. Leastways, I sure whacked him with that cup. Yes, sir. Uh, Doc say anything to you fellas about how I'm doing? Well, just that you're getting along. He make up his mind about my right arm yet? What? Whether I'm going to lose it or not? No, sir, he didn't tell us. Uh, guess in a way I'm kind of lucky. What? Being left-handed. We asked the victim, Fred Joplin, to describe the suspect. The description he gave us tallied with what we already had. 11.17 a.m., Frank and I went back to the office. I can't figure it out, Joe. What? Why he'd switch from hotels to a cafe. Well, maybe he tumbled to our steakhouse. Yeah, I'm not sure he'd try the Argus, though. It's the right spot for him. I get it. Robbery Friday. I see. Yeah. Anything else? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give us something to go on anyway. Thank you. Right. Lee Jones in the lab. What's he got? Well, Joplin was right. He sure didn't miss with that coffee cup. They find the pieces? More than that. Huh? Found a broken front tooth. Analysis of the broken tooth revealed that it was part of a lower incisor. From what we learned of the suspect, it seemed likely that he would make an immediate effort to have the tooth replaced. For the next three days, Frank and I interviewed dentists in the immediate vicinity of the robberies. Thursday, November 3rd, 3.17 p.m. We questioned Dr. Clinton Potterfield in his office on the second floor of the Marsh Building. Yes. Yes, I believe I had such a patient last Monday. Broken incisor? Yes, that's right. Could you tell us what he looked like? Oh, young man, about 30, nicely dressed, seemed very pleasant. Did he say what had happened to his tooth? Yes, he did. Automobile accident. I see. He knocked it against the steering wheel. Uh-huh. He wanted a new fitting right away. Yes, sir. He agreed to make him a temporary as soon as I could. It should be finished tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He offered to pay me extra if I'd hurry it up. I told him you can't rush a new bridge, even a temporary. Yes, sir. Did he give you his name and address? Well, not me personally. My receptionist takes care of those details. Yes, I understand. Would you mind checking with her? No, not a bit. Excuse me. It's about time we got a break. Oh. Hey, look out there. Hmm? Starting to rain. Yes, sir, it is. Yeah, just like the paper said. It's going to be a wet winter. Ah, here you are, gentlemen. I had her copy down for you. Thank you. Philip Seaver. Huh? Yes, that's correct. His address is right there, too. Yeah. Well, at least we know one thing now. What's that? Why he skipped over the Argus Hotel. Yeah? He lives there. p.m. Frank and I drove over to the Argus Hotel and we talked to the owner, George Argus. He told us that Philip Seaver lived on the second floor, room 23. He said that Seaver was a quiet young man who had been staying at the hotel for the past six weeks. He also told us that Seaver worked nights and was probably in his room now. We took the elevator up to the second floor. There it is. Hey, 
What? Move. I sure don't know what this is all about. Yeah, he's clean, Joe. All right, turn around. Okay. Where's the shotgun? You guys must be off your rockers. I'll see what I can turn up. All right. You got the right come busting in here? Yeah. Then what would I be doing with the shotgun? Why don't you tell us? I never had a gun in my life. Boy, you cops sure make the darnest mistakes. I bet you picked the wrong guy up half the time. Yeah, sure. Look, there's nothing in that bureau except my clothes there, fella. Yeah, what about this? Well, it's just a satchel, that's all. It's locked. Where's the key? I don't know. I lost it. Break it open. Yeah. Hey, that's a good bag. Not worth anything to you without a key, is it? All right, Seeker, let's go. How the heck did that get in there? You don't know. I told you I didn't. Yeah. I never had a shotgun in my life. Well, you got one now. Oh, I must have picked up the wrong bag by mistake. Sure, that's what happened. All right, come on, Seeker. Okay, okay, I'm coming. Get down! Cut your hand. Oh, be all right. Look at that. Huh? You must have bad ones. What's that? Another tooth missing. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 12th, trial was held in Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. <laughs> Philip Herbert Seaver was tried and convicted of robbery in the first degree, five counts, and received sentence as prescribed by law. Robbery in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment for a period of not less than five years in the state penitentiary. Because of the viciousness of the suspect, it was decided that the terms would run consecutively. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. This next part wasn't part of the original radio show, but sometimes I just like to add it in there because it reminds me when I was a kid. (laughs) I just love that. Just love that sound, that big old sweaty hand. Was it Mark 7 Productions, I think? That was Dragnet. That one was originally broadcast on NBC on April the 5th in 1955, and it was called The Big No-Tooth. Wonderful title. A couple, couple program notes on that episode. Some people might be wondering, why would Frank be talking about snow? Does it snow in Los Angeles? No, it doesn't snow in Los Angeles, but Los Angeles, believe it or not, is surrounded by very high mountains. And Los Angeles sits down in a, it's not actually a valley, it's what they call a basin, because it goes up to the sea. And interestingly, having grown up there, of course, when I was a little kid, back in the 50s, they had smog alerts. There was a lot of smog in Los Angeles. Uh, Now it's not nearly as bad. But even so, you still do not often see the mountains, and it's rather sad because these mountains are majestic. The San Gabriels, the San Bernardino Mountains, 
just make up the eastern backdrop. And when it rains or when the Santa Ana winds come and blow all the smog out into the sea, sometimes it is unbelievable how close those mountains are and how tall they are and how breathtaking they are. And unfortunately, most days you can't even see them. But anyway, the idea about snow is when you do get, generally in Southern California, if you're going to get rain, it rains during the winter months. And when that happens, the uh, it clears the air, and suddenly you can see these mountains, and you can actually see where the snow level is. And Many times, if it's been cool down in the basin, you can see that the snow is down to maybe three, four, five thousand feet. And so that's what Frank was talking about, obviously. He said it's going to be a wet winter, and maybe this year he'd try his hand at skiing or, anyway, playing in the snow. The other thing, did you catch the comment about transistor radios, that the fellow had a transistor radio and the, the, the boys hadn't seen one before? You may not know exactly when transistor radios were first sold. Well, don't worry, I looked it up for you. The Regency TR-1 was the first commercially manufactured transistor radio, and it was first sold in 1954. So this show was uh, aired in uh, April of 1955. The the Regency TR-1 was a novelty because of its small size and portability. There were about 150,000 units sold. And it had rather mediocre performance, but maybe by 55, there were other brands too. I can remember what a really big deal it was to have a small radio, transistor radio. You could sneak them in your pocket at school. Before that, I can actually remember back when World Series games were played uh, as day games, and they did not, of course, let you out of school. So you would try to sneak into a radio or something into school to listen to them. I remember having a crystal set. Does anyone remember a crystal set? Well, if you don't know what that is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to uh, describe it. Look it up online. But I can remember listening to the World Series on a crystal set, uh, like during recess or something. But transistor radios, thats uh, and they were expensive in the beginning. You know, later on, they started getting real cheap. And I remember you could get them with two transistors or four transistors or I think six or eight transistors, if I'm not mistaken. And the two transistor ones were the ones that were really cheap later on, probably in the oh mid-60s they started getting really cheap. But they never worked very well. The four or uh, six transistors were, were much better. Transistor radio. One other thing. In the very beginning, Dragnet was uh, well known for its sound effects. I don't think they were nearly as good as Gunsmoke's. But did you notice the opening sound effect in this episode? It's the boys walking across, I guess, sidewalk, going under this hotel to interview this fellow. But when I first heard it, I, I, thought, they were, I thought they were at a ping pong game. See what you think. It was Sunday, October 9th. It was cool in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Frank Smith, the boss, chief of detective Stad Brown. My name's Friday. We're on our way out from the office, and it was 2.06 a.m. when we got to the corner of Cinnabar Street. And... Am I wrong? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like a ping-pong game? 
<clears throat> I'm sure I couldn't have done any better, but uh, it's funny. I, I just didn't see them walking at all. I, I thought they were playing ping pong, and I thought, what a, what a strange context for a, for a ping pong game. Then I figured it out that uh, this was the sound of, of footsteps. Oh, well, just having some fun. I still think it's one of the really great old-time radio shows, and we will play lots of Dragnet in the weeks ahead. All right, at our uh, son's wedding, uh, you know, it's traditional, of course, the bride and groom have the first dance, and the father of the bride and the bride have the second dance, and then the groom and his mother have the third dance, and Seth really wanted to do that. Carol uh, was a little nervous about it, but she doesn't like to be put in the spotlight. None of us, I guess, do, but she uh, certainly consented to it. She looked forward to it. But Seth had come up with a couple of songs that meant a lot to them when they were when he was a child. She used to play uh, show tunes, and one of them was uh, from the King and I, "Shall We Dance?" And they would dance around the living room, and and that was a a fond memory. And that was one they considered. They they ended up dancing to another another song from King and I, but one of the tunes that uh, Seth brought up that we used to play for him, I guess, a lot as a kid, especially Carol, because she spent so much time with the boys. She was just such a good mother that way. But this was a song that was popular uh, when we were first dating. And there used to be a bluegrass group in Peoria, Illinois, that we would go see whenever we were there. And we lived there for a short time, and we'd go see them almost every weekend. And they'd play the same songs every week, but they were great. Applegate and Company was their name, Bob Applegate. But this is one of the songs they played, and uh, Carol used to play it a lot for Seth when he was young, and, and the other boys too. And they almost chose this one to dance to, but this one's a little tough to dance to. But still, it's a very, very sentimental song. See if you don't agree. Branches lit up by the moon Posing our questions to Al and Dior As our days disappeared all too soon But I've wandered much further today than I should And I can't seem to find my way back to the wood So help me if you can I've got to get Back to the house at the corner by one You'd be surprised there's so much to be done Count all the bees in the hive Chase all the clouds from the sky Back to the days of Christopher, Robin and Hood Just stuck on his nose He came to me asking help and advice And from here no one knows where he goes So I sent him to ask the owl if he's there I'd loosen a jar from the nose of a bear So help me if you can 
to the house and you can't buy one You'd be surprised there's so much to be done Count all the bees in the hive Chase all the clouds from the sky Back to the days of Christopher Robin and Pooh Madison High School. Haven't been there for a little while. We're going to go visit uh, our Miss Brooks and Mr. Boynton and Mr. Conklin and Walter Denton and uh, Mrs. Davis and the whole the whole gang. Harriet Conklin's in this one. This one was originally broadcast on CBS on August the 7th, 1955, and it's entitled Cat Burglar. Now, Anison, the tablets thousands of physicians and dentists recommend for fast relief of pain of headache, neuritis, neuralgia, and bisodol mints, that quickly rid stomach of gastric distress. 
present Aramis Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Well, there are many reasons why our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, and her landlady, Mrs. Davis, get along so well. Having lived together for many years, they've developed a system of cooperation that begins the first thing in the morning. Yes, we do everything on schedule. At 7 o'clock sharp, the alarm goes off in Mrs. Davis's room. She gets up, brushes her teeth, and promptly at 7.10 comes into my room and wakes me up. I hop out and brush my teeth, and then at 7.20, I walk into Mrs. Davis's room and wake her up once more. <laughs> then she combs her hair, slips on a house dress, and by 7.30, she's all ready to dash in and get me out of bed again. <laughs> but by 7.40 or so, when we sit down to breakfast, we're both as chipper as two larks, eager, bright-eyed, and ready to face the new day. Take last Friday morning, for instance, when Mrs. Davis set my plate before me her first words were... Connie. Oh, Connie, wake up and eat your eggs. Huh? Oh, <laughs> I'm wide awake, Mrs. Davis. Good. Then get your chin out of your tomato juice and eat. <laughs> I'm pretty hungry now that I'm up. Mmm, this juice is good. Feels nice and cool on my chin. <laughs> now I'll just do a job on these scrambled eggs. They seem a little different today. I, Oh, where did you get these eggs, Mrs. Davis? Now, Connie, you're just not used to powdered eggs. <laughs> powdered eggs? The grocer assured me that we'd never be able to tell them from the genuine article. He's right. They taste just like real powder. <laughs> well, I'll settle for toast and coffee. Uh, pass the butter, please, Mrs. Davis. Certainly, dear. But it's margarine. Margarine? Yes, it's quite a bit cheaper than butter. Oh, I see. Here, care for a part of the paper, dear? No, I'll just eat a big lunch. <laughs> oh, you mean to read. <laughs> yes, thanks. I know the breakfast isn't what it should be today, Connie, but frankly, it was my way of hinting that it's difficult to make ends meet. I know, Mrs. Davis. I owe you eight weeks back rent now. It'll be nine tomorrow. <laughs> I don't like to dun you, dear. But I've got to raise $50 by next week or lose all my living room furniture. But you own that furniture outright, Mrs. Davis. You made the last payment two months ago, don't you remember? Certainly, dear. But then last month I had to have the roof repaired. So? So I borrowed on the living room furniture. <laughs> this is getting pretty involved, but since it's my fault that you don't have the money, I'll try to get it for you someplace. Maybe Mr. Conklin will advance it to me. Oh, that's very considerate, dear. Things could be worse, I suppose. Look at this story in the newspaper, the third robbery in this vicinity in a week. Last night in the next block, a house was robbed by cat burglars. Cat burglars? Who did they rob? Mr. and Mrs. Katz. <laughs> My goodness, some people have all the luck. Luck? Why couldn't they have broken into this house while we were out? I could have collected enough insurance to pay what I borrowed on the furniture and get some new stuff besides. Well, that's no way for you to think, Mrs. Davis. After all... 
That must be Walter Denton to drive me to school. Oh, dear. Do you suppose he's got a big appetite this morning? That's like asking if John L. Lewis has eyebrows. <laughs> uh, come on in, Walter. I'll set a place for him. Top of the morning, gracious ladies. And the rest of the day to yourself, Barry Fitzgerald. <laughs> we haven't much to offer today in the way of breakfast, Walter, well, but... what's wrong with the stuff on this platter? I'll just help myself to a plateful, if I may. Certainly you may, dear. Here's a knife and fork. Mmm. Oh, this is delicious. You like it? Oh, sure I like it. Oh, this is one of my favorite dishes. You know what it is? Well, I ought to know what it is. I've been eating it since I was four years old. You have? Well, sure. Oh, I don't want to sound like a connoisseur or anything, but these are absolutely the best hominy grits I ever had. <laughs> Hominy grits? Yes, doesn't Mrs. Davis prepare them wonderfully, Walter? Mm. If you'll excuse me a moment, I'd better clean up the kitchen. I thought you had. I mean... <laughs> I'll see you later, Mrs. Davis. Yeah, I'll see you later, Mrs. Davis. Well, now that we're alone, Miss Brooks, I'd like to ask a favor of you. It's in connection with Harriet Conklin. What about Harriet Conklin? She's broken three dates with me this week, and she won't tell me why. Now, Miss Brooks, you're a woman... Warm, attractive, desirable. Have some more hominy grits. <laughs> I mean, go on, Walter. Well, being the kind of person you are, you can ascertain better than I how another such person would act toward a person like myself if a third person entered such a person's life. From the adage, one man's meat is another man's person. Look, Walter, I've got to see Mr. Conklin this morning about getting an advance. So if Harriet's around his office, I'll try to find out whether or not there's a new romantic interest in her life. Wonderful, Miss Brooks. How do you propose to accomplish this? In a very devious, feminine, and mysterious fashion, Walter. How? I'll ask her. <laughs> but, Daddy, just because you and Mother are going to be away until tomorrow doesn't mean someone has to stay over with me. Well, I think it's ridiculous. Silence, Harriet. <laughs> After the years we've been married to one another, your mother and I ought to be better judges of what is ridiculous. What I mean is we have better judgment in these matters. <laughs> but just because of a few silly holdups in the other end of town... Honestly, I was too ashamed to even tell Walter Denton why I couldn't go out with him all this past week. Ashamed? With gangs of hoodlums roaming the streets? I want your mother's mind to be at ease about you tonight. She's worried enough about that emergency call from your grandmother as it is. Oh, there's nothing really wrong with Granny. She's just lonesome. And, Daddy, you must look at my side of this. Well, here I am, a 16-year-old girl, and you want to get me a babysitter. Why, if any of the kids at school find out about this, they'll laugh me right out of Madison. Well, don't worry about that. I'll giggle you right back in. <laughs> now then, it's just a question of whom to persuade to stay over with you. I'd like someone dependable and reliable. Someone who could think fast in an emergency. Who is it? It's Miss Brooks, sir. I may have to settle for less. <laughs> One moment, Miss Brooks. Now then, Harriet, to avoid any unnecessary discussion, you will kindly leave through my inner office. But, Daddy, won't you... March, Moppet! <laughs> Come in, Miss Brooks. 
Good morning, Mr. Conklin. I know you're busy, so I'll come right to the point. I have a favor to ask. Now, isn't that a coincidence? I, too, have a favor to ask. Well, you know what I always say, one hand washes the other. Yes, I know, but the last time you said it, my hand didn't even get into the basin. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you, sir, uh, was Later, this... later, Miss Brooks. Mine is by far the more pressing business at the moment. No doubt you heard of the recent robberies around town? Yes, I have, Mr. Conklin. I don't like to sound redundant, but just last night, cat burglars robbed the cats's. Yeah. <laughs> Disgraceful. Nobody knows where they'll strike next. Now, it so happens that my wife and I have to be out of town tonight, and we want someone to remain in our home with Harriet. Well, I'd like to help you out, sir, but tonight is Friday. Oh, thank you for a most illuminating prognostication. Uh, what I mean is I have a previous engagement, sir, with Mr. Boynton. For the sake of your principal's peace of mind, Miss Brooks, a mere social engagement can easily be broken. But, Mr. Conklin, he'd be very disappointed and... Oh, wait a minute, I've got an idea. Maybe Mr. Boynton could spend the evening with me over at your house. At my house? Well, I'm only suggesting it in case of an emergency, Mr. Conklin. I was thinking of Mr. Boynton's good right arm. Uh, since when have you become partial? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Miss Brooks, I'm afraid you won't have any time for Mr. Boynton. It just happens I have a long report to the board, which I expect you to type out for me in triplicate. A report? Yes, and I'll need it as soon as I return. So you see, Miss Brooks... Mr. Boynton would just be in the way. Uh, but, sir, Miss I... Brooks, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your coming in here and volunteering for this assignment. <laughs> Think nothing of it, Mr. Conklin. I don't. <laughs> what about my favor? Remember, one hand washes the other? Oh, we must get around to your favor by all means. Please be sure to remind me of it next week. <laughs> Mr. Conklin... I said next week, Miss Brooks. Now, I'm quite busy, so that will be all. Miss! Miss! <laughs> yes, sir. Here we go again, me and my unwashed hands. Well, of all the nerve, forcing me to break a date because he has to leave town. Oh, Miss Brooks, I've been waiting until you got out of Daddy's office to talk to you. Well, if it isn't my little roommate. What's up, Harriet? I knew Daddy would hook you into staying over at our house tonight, but... You've got to promise me you won't breathe a word of it to a soul. Oh, golly, if anyone heard I needed a babysitter, why, I'd die of shame. But what'll I tell Mr. Boynton when I break my date with him? Well, just tell him it's a secret. Please, Miss Brooks, it's vital. All right, Harriet, I won't say a word about it. Will you take an oath on that? In blood, Harriet. And I know whose blood I'd like to use. <laughs> it was bad enough having to look forward to a night at Mr. Conklin's typing reports, but I faced my most unpleasant task at lunchtime. That's when I had to break my date with a man I hoped would someday make me the proud babysitter for my own babies. It was doubly difficult, since I'd promised Harriet I wouldn't mention the real reason. So when Mr. Boynton sat down at our usual table in the cafeteria, I decided to sneak up on the subject in a subtle manner. Mr. Boynton? Oh, yes, Miss Brooks? I can't keep our appointment tonight. You can't keep it? May I ask why not? 
Of course you may ask. Well, I'm asking. Well, I'm not telling. (laughs) You see, I promised the person I am going to be with that I'd keep it a secret. Oh, so it's that way. That way? What is that way? Oh, come now, Miss Brooks. You know, and I know that you know exactly what way that way is. Oh, you do? Well, what would you say if I were to tell you that you may think you know that I know exactly what way that way is, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I do know what way the that way is that you're talking about? (laughs) If any members of my English class are listening, please don't. Dissembling will get you nowhere, Miss Brooks. All right. Then I'll try assembling. (laughs) I didn't want to break this date, Mr. Boynton, but I honestly didn't think it would matter so much to you. No, it doesn't. Doesn't matter in the least. (laughs) Not in the least. Good. If you found some other man you'd rather go out with, go right ahead. Well, that's very... Some other man? (laughs) You probably met someone who's taller, more handsome, and with a better personality than I have. If so, good luck to you. If so, who needs it? You don't understand, Mr. Boynton. Oh, oh, don't don't try to spare my feelings. I don't blame you for preferring to drive around in a Cadillac instead of my old heap. A Cadillac? After all, why should a girl waste her time on a poor schoolteacher when she can enjoy the comfort and luxuries a wealthy playboy has to offer? Well, that clears up where the Cadillac came from. (laughs) But, Mr. Boynton, as far as tonight's concerned... I, I said it was all right, Miss Brooks. I couldn't expect you to pass up cocktails and dinner and dancing in some swanky restaurant to go out with me. Well, I'm sorry you're disappointed about tonight, Mr. Vine. You'd be disappointed, too, if you had to go to a boring ladies' bazaar because somebody broke a date with you. Ladies' bazaar? Oh, in a weak moment, I promised my landlady that I'd attend if anything unforeseen happened to my engagement this evening. Well, it just happened. Well, cheer up, Mr. Boynton. The bazaar may not be so bad. Not so bad? I'll have to work in one of those booths. Doing what? Selling kisses, that's what. (laughs) (laughs) Yipe. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to get myself some milk and wash this all down. Get two, will you? I might as well be loaded as the way I am. I'll bring it back to the table. Here's the dime for mine, Mr. Boynton. Well, that's all right. I'll lay it out. All the times to get a stand-up Oh, Mr. Boynton, will you come over a moment? Well, Mr. Conklin, well, this is quite a surprise As a rule, you don't eat here in the cafeteria I thought I'd live dangerously today (laughs) Boynton, I noticed you talking with Miss Brooks And I thought I ought to warn you If you're entertaining any thoughts of coming over to my house tonight to see her Dismiss them To your house, sir? Yes. Miss Brooks will be much too busy typing a report for me to engage in any social activities. So that's where she's going to be tonight. Didn't she mention it? With all these robberies lately, I asked her to remain overnight with Harriet, since Mrs. Conklin and I will be away. Well, what do you know about that? What do I know about what? (laughs) She told me she had a date to go out with a wealthy playboy in a big Cadillac. (laughs) I've got a good mind to teach her a lesson. By Godfrey, I'll do it. I'm going to drink both glasses of milk. (laughs) 
by that evening, the babysitter brigade had multiplied. I was babysitting for Harriet Conklin, and Mrs. Davis was babysitting for me. Oh, listen to that wind howling. I'm glad you came over after all, Miss Brooks. It's a great night for a robbery, all right. Now, Harriet, we said we weren't going to mention the word robbery again. Just close that window near the piano and you won't hear the wind. All right. It was nice of you to invite me over, too, Harriet. I get awfully jittery sitting home alone with my cat Minerva on such a dark, gloomy night. I get jittery sitting with Minerva on a sunny day. She just gives me the creep sometimes. Maybe the cat burglars will swipe their namesake. <laughs> now, Connie, that's no way to talk about Minerva. You know how fond she is of you. Yes, I know. She won't manicure her nails with anybody else's nylons. <laughs> I read where one of the robber's latest victims suffered a concussion, and the pictures showed three huge bumps on his head where he'd evidently been blackjacked. Don't be an alarmist, Harriet. For all you know, he was just a tall man who forgot to duck when he went into a pawn shop. <laughs> now, let's change the subject. Yes, let's discuss something else entirely. Anybody read any good books lately? I just read a corker the other night. What was the name of it? She knifed her mate. <laughs> or... The way to a man's heart is through his chest. Well, maybe we ought to discuss the robberies again. But if conversation won't help, maybe some good music will. Harriet, suppose you put a few cheerful records on the phonograph. Oh, good idea, Miss Brooks. Oh, gee, I just remembered. I lent most of my collection to Nellie Miner's. All I've got left are those on top of the machine. Well, they're better than nothing. Let's see some of the titles. Oh, here's a dandy one to perk us up. What's it called, Connie? Slaughter on 10th Avenue. <laughs> Maybe the one on the back's more lighthearted. Oh, sure. Murder, he says. <laughs> Guess we'd better turn on the radio, Harriet. I'll do it. Trying to determine whether or not broadcasting race results is in the public interest. And now for the local news. Those burglars who have terrorized the residential sections of our city three times during the past week have stepped up their pace tonight. Already two more homes have been robbed. Two more tonight? One of the victims, Mr. George Stewart, a high school principal, was found unconscious in his living room. How could they tell? <laughs> the police have requested that we broadcast this warning. Keep your home brightly illuminated until bedtime. I repeat, keep some illumination in your home throughout the night. If the phone rings and there's no one on the other end when you answer it, it may be one of the gang calling to see if your home is empty. Women especially should exercise extreme caution. If you are... Miss Brooks, why did you turn off the radio? Because you two are nervous enough without it. But two more robberies tonight. One of them a principal's house. And did you hear what he said about the phone calls? Well, we haven't had any phone calls. And there's no reason to assume that we will. Even if the telephone should ring, there's no point in getting panicky about it. We'll just cross that bridge when we come to it. Take everything in stride, so to speak. The cat burglar. Don't answer that phone, Miss Brooks. 
But if we don't answer it, Harriet, they'll think there's nobody home. Let them think what they like. The announcer said that women especially must exercise extreme caution, Connie. Oh, I'm scared, Miss Brooks. I don't know what to do. Nonsense. There's absolutely no reason to get so frightened. After all, it's a... That's funny. Stopped ringing. Oh, well. Now let's all calm down and stop being so fearful. One thing we can do is put some more lights on in this room. But they're all on now, Miss Brooks. No, not quite, Harriet. There's a bulb missing in that lamp by the sofa. (laughs) Well, we've got a bulb for it right here on the bookcase, but Daddy says that's a faulty socket. Well, this is no time to worry about Daddy's faulty socket. (laughs) I'll just take this bulb, screw it in here like this, and... Ow! The lights. The lights. What happened to the lights? They're out all over the house. Oh, you must have caused a short circuit. Where's the fuse box, Harriet? In back in the garage. Are you going out there? I certainly am. About nine o'clock tomorrow morning. (laughs) But we can't leave the house in darkness like this. Well, the burglars may be here any minute. But I don't know anything about fuse boxes, Harriet. Maybe Mrs. Davis would know how to... By the way, where is Mrs. Davis? (laughs) Right over here, dear, under the piano. (laughs) What are we going to do, Miss Brooks? Don't worry, Harriet. I know exactly what to do. What? Mrs. Davis, move over. (laughs) I'm sorry if my phone call disturbed you, Walter, but I've got to know if you've been out with Harriet tonight. Mr. Boynton, I haven't been out with her in a week. But aren't you with Miss Brooks tonight? No. She's supposed to type some report at Mr. Conklin's house tonight and stay over with Harriet. Mr. Conklin wanted somebody there because he and his wife are out of town and... Well, if the Conklins are out of town and Miss Brooks is with Harriet, what are we waiting for? (laughs) Please, Walter, listen. I heard a report on the radio that alarmed me. So I telephoned the Conklin's house to see if everything was all right. But there was no answer. No answer? Well, maybe they all stayed over at Mrs. Davis's tonight. No, I tried that number, and it doesn't answer either. Frankly, Walter, I'm worried. Well, now that you mention it, so am I. Uh, well, just sit tight for now. I'm going over to the Conklins. But how will you get in? Well, I'll get in some way and find out just what's happening one way or another. <laughs> Well, dark house or no dark house, now that we're ready, we'll give those burglars a warm reception. Are you all set, Mrs. Davis? All set, Harriet. I can swing this waffle iron like a tennis racket. (laughs) If you hit anybody with that, it should be loads of fun for the interns. They can play tic-tac-toe on his head. (laughs) This skillet I've got is no slouch as a weapon either. And I've got the double boiler. It ought to be... Quiet. I think I saw something move outside this window. Battle stations, everyone. He's coming in. He is in. Okay, girls, pots away. Time will be 9.31. Let him have it again. No, no, no. Wait. It's me, Mr. Boynton. Mr. Boynton? 
I know teachers aren't paid very well, but this is a fine way to pick up a couple of bucks. You don't understand, Miss Brooks. I phoned here, but there wasn't any answer. So I came over to see if you were all right. Now, wasn't that sweet? <laughs> I hope we didn't batter you too badly, Mr. Boynton. Oh, I'll probably have a few bumps, but I don't think it's... Just a minute. I think there's someone else at the window. Yes, it's a big shadow this time. <laughs> this must be the real burglar. Now, don't be alarmed, ladies. Thanks, thanks to heaven, I'm here to protect you. Okay, girls, pots away! I got him! Hold his arm, someone! Miss Brooks, will you kindly remove those pointed knees from my chest? Mr. Conklin! This is outrageous! Can't a man return to his own home after his car breaks down? without being assaulted by one of his teachers. <laughs> we didn't know it was you, Mr. Conklin. Of course, we didn't, Osgood. We couldn't see who it was, Daddy. So there are four of you in on it. <laughs> Miss Brooks, what have you to say? How about a rubber bridge? <laughs> Thomas Brooks, starring Gordon Transcribe, is produced and directed by Larry Burns, written by Arthur Oldsburg and Al Lewis with the music of Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Conklin was played by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Bob Rockwell, Gloria McMillan, and Joel Samuels. Be sure to be with us next week for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. I never got to go to a taping or a recording of a uh, radio show, but certainly have been to a lot of television show productions uh, where there's a live studio audience, and as the music fades out here and and the uh, audience is applauding, you can just see those applause signs going off because it's just not natural to keep applauding that long just during music. You know, if somebody's out taking a bow, yeah, but just during the music, uh, the exit music, it, it's not... Uh, not normal. So you can just picture those applause signs going off and on. That was our Miss Brooks. That was originally broadcast on CBS back on, <clears throat> excuse me, back on August the 7th in 1955. And the name of that one was The Cat Burglar. Uh, a couple a couple program notes here on our Miss Brooks. Uh, did you notice how at the beginning it was presented by Anison? which is uh, highly recommended by doctors and dentists, and it is for neuritis and neuralgia. Now, I think we might have talked about this before, but did you ever know anybody that suffered with neuritis or neuralgia? And yet I can remember that for years, Anison used that, and if I'm not mistaken, Bufferin might have too. But I don't remember people... You know, I can remember... Um, like my aunt had a bad case of uh, rheumatism or uh, arthritis, you know. But I don't remember anybody saying, oh, my mother really suffers with neuritis. Or, uh, oh, neuralgia, oh my, you need some anison. I, I finally had to look it up. Neuritis and neuralgia both say about the same thing. It's nerve pain. 
So it could be almost any place. And then it mentioned things like shingles. Uh, and I, I, you know, I have a brother-in-law that just went through a case of shingles, and we've known a number of people with that. Uh, and I understand those are very painful. But it doesn't say for shingles. It says for neuritis or neuralgia. It's one of those things that was common back then. Like uh, it wasn't uh, Colgate toothpaste. It was Colgate dental cream and a dentifrice. And it's just some of those words are, aren't very common to us today, but I don't remember them being common then. Okay, that was one thing. What was the other thing? Oh, um, hang on. Let me get my notes here. Uh, they were talking about big eyebrows, and Connie Brooks said, uh, well, she equated big eyebrows to John L. Lewis. I didn't remember who that was. So I looked it up. Uh, John L. Lewis was an American leader of organized labor who served as president of the United Mine Workers of America from 1920 to 1960, 40 years. In the post-war years, he uh, continued his militant leadership. His miners went on strikes or work stoppages annually. In 1945, 46, 1948, 1949, 1950, he led strikes that President Harry S. Truman denounced as threats to national security. In response, industry, railroads, and homeowners rapidly switched from uh, coal to oil. I do remember as a kid uh, a lot of news stories about strikes, in, uh, coal miner strikes. Did you ever see that movie Matawan? That was about that, one of the, one of the strikes. It, just, it was in the news a lot, and I do remember that, so I guess that's uh, why he would have been a familiar character to adults that uh, watched the news back in 1955. But I guess he was a very, very fiery character in the news constantly. And if you look in at his picture, go into Google and uh, put in John Llewellyn Lewis and look at images. And my goodness, he did have bushy eyebrows. All right, I put a little Loggins and Messina earlier, and I was telling you about this bluegrass band we used to to go see all the time in Peoria. Here's another tune that they played almost every week, and this is another one that uh, I have here in my file by Logginson Messina. Thinking you're all that you've got Then don't feel alone anymore Cause when we're together Then you've got a lot Cause I am the river And you are the shore And it goes on and on No more watching the Sitting and learning and learning to 
swing and swirling and dancing along Pass by the old willow tree Where lovers caress as we sing the bar song Rejoicing together when we greet the sea And it goes on and on Watching the river
feeling it, aren't we? We are instantly transported to Dodge City. It's 1874. Front Street is dusty. There's the long branch off to the right. There's the marshal's office. It looks like uh, Doc Adams is up above the marshal's office. There's the Alifraganza down the street. Here comes Matt Dillon. Chester walking back from the Long Branch. Kitty's calling to him. Ah, yeah, it's time for Gunsmoke, everybody. I just love this every week that we can get together and enjoy one of these great shows. And tonight we've got a good one also from 1955. This one was originally broadcast on the 20th of August over CBS. This one features, uh, besides our normal stellar cast, it also has... uh, Lawrence Dobkin as the title character. He squares off against Harry Bartell in this one, and we throw in a little Joseph Kern in the mix. He plays uh, the Colonel at Fort Dodge. And it's a good episode. This one is not a funny episode. This is a dramatic episode. And this is, again, one of the reasons why Gunsmoke was considered an adult western. You would not hear this episode on Hopalong Cassidy or the Cisco Kid. So here we go from August of 1955. This is the Indian Scout on Gunsmoke. <laughs> Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Chester. Oh, it's a sad thing. Maybe the cavalry does come busting into town, getting drunk, spoiling for trouble sometimes, but I don't like to see them come in this way, sewed up in sacks, laid out over their horses. Yeah, I know, Chester. It all makes a man feel so sad. And mad, too. Yeah, there'll be plenty like that. Oh, that's certain. Look at them, lined up all down the street, watching. Like that Will Bailey over there. 
Now he's got more reason than some. Yeah, I know his brother's in one of them sacks. Imagine him standing there watching, wondering which one. Oh, it's an awful sad thing. Well, let's just hope there'll be no more brought in like this. I guess I wasn't very hungry, Kitty. Ah, oh, and that cook made up some of that beef stew you like. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I guess I could manage a little then. Well, I'll get it. You sit down. Uh, I'll be back in a minute. Hello, Bailey. Oh, hello, Marshal. I, uh, I'm sorry about your brother. Yeah. We all are. A lot of good it does. Yeah, I know how you feel. About the cavalry will get the ones that did it. The cavalry. It'll take them weeks to get ready. By the time they go out, those Comanches will be nowhere near Cold Creek. Oh, Marshal, we're going out on our own. You better think that over, baby. We've thought it over. And we won't bother about which engines did it, either. That'd do a lot of good, wouldn't it? Starting an Indian war all over again? I ain't gonna argue with you, Marshal. But I'll tell you one thing. There's one man right here in town who's gonna die first. You mean Amos Cartwright? That's right. The one who led those boys into ambush at Cold Creek. Bailey, that's only a wild idea. Amos Cartwright's always been a good, reliable scout. He came back, didn't he? He was the only one who got out alive, wasn't he? He was scouting way out ahead. And it was his job to spot the Comanches. But he didn't. Well, there might have been reasons. Yeah. There were reasons, all right. He's a Comanche himself. Lived with him, married one, rode on war parties with him. And he led that patrol into ambush for him. Killing Cartwright's not gonna help your brother. And it could get you into trouble with the law. I'll take my chances on that. All right, Bailey. Maybe in a couple of days you'll cool down and see some reason. Hmm. Here it is. Getting cold. Oh, thanks, Kitty. That Bailey's pretty hot, isn't he? Can't say I blame him too much. No, I can't either. Too much. You think what he says about Amos is true, Matt? I think you ought to have proof before you condemn a man, Kitty. But Amos is a queer sort. So are a lot of others out here. Now, that's no reason to kill him. No, of course not. Well, how is it? What? How is it? Uh, oh, I guess I was hungrier than I thought. Or oh, the cook's getting better. <laughs> I guess there's still room for improvement. Bailey. Miss Cartwright. All right, don't touch your gun, Bailey. You just stay like that. Amos, you better find someplace else to eat today. I come to see Bailey. All right, you've seen him. Now go on. Mister, I don't allow nobody to say things about me. I said them, and I'll say them again. You're no better than a Comanche yourself. You're a lying, sneaking, murdering savage with your buckskin shirt and your Comanche leggings and your braided hair. And you're the same as kill those men at Cold Creek. All right, that's enough. Shut up! Come on, Amos. Mister, I'll see you later. Well, 
Where are you taking me, Marshal? Just outside here. Amos, this will all blow over in a couple of days, but until it does, I think maybe you better stay out of sight. Maybe out at the fort. I huh? can take care of him. It's not just him. He's got half the town believing it. You believe it, Marshal? I don't believe anything. I don't see the proof for it. And speaking of proof, if you've got any on your side, it'd help to bring it out. How do you prove something that nobody saw? Nobody alive, that is. Well, maybe if you ask the colonel for a statement. I don't ask no man's help. All right, then. Be pig-headed. I might ask him myself. But you take my advice, Amos. You walk easy for a while. No need for you to bother about me, Marshal. I can handle this myself. I hope so, Amos. I hope so. Afternoon, Corporal. Oh, howdy, Marshal. The Colonel here? Yes, sir. Right there on the parade ground. Yeah. Which one's in the hooskah this time? <laughs> Nobody at the moment, Corporal. Well, ain't that a wonder? Pass. Thank you. Well, Marshal. Afternoon, Colonel. Who's in trouble now? That's about Amos Cartwright, Colonel. Oh, that. Yeah. You know what they're saying about Amos. I know. Well, feelings are running pretty high in town, and there could be some trouble. That's your worry, not mine. Well, I just want a statement from you. What kind of statement? Ah, that Amos Cartwright didn't lead that patrol into ambush at Cold Creek. I can't give you that statement, Marshal, because I don't know if it's true. I see. You have evidence against Amos? No. His story sounds plausible, but I've cut him off the payroll. He won't scout for us again. Yeah, but if it weren't true, would he have come back, told the story, taken out the burial party, all that? I don't trust a man who's lived as an Indian. I don't like having to use him. I see. Frankly, I don't care if they do string him up. I got other things to worry about. We're getting the stores ready for a major expedition. We're going to put down those Comanches for good. Well... Thanks anyway, Colonel. Sorry you had to come all the way out here on such a hot day for nothing, Marshal. It can't be helped. I'll see you later, Colonel. What is it, Chester? Oh, my gracious, I'm glad you're back. Oh, what's happened? Just what you was afraid of. Bailey and Amos. What? Bailey's dead. Bailey? We got him right up there at Doc's. That's why I called you. All right, let's go. Oh, he didn't give him a chance, no chance at all. Took him by surprise, come up behind with a knife and slit his throat. Oh, my gracious. Where was this? Over there by the labor stable. Must have been waiting for him to come for his horse. Got clean away, too, before anybody knew what happened. Oh, hello, Max. Doc. In here. Look, Matt. Yeah. It's an Indian trick coming up behind a man. And Matt, right here. 
Mm-hmm. He must have gone all Indian, that's a fact. I suppose he feared it was him or Bailey or it was a matter of honor or something. He didn't have to do that, Chester. He probably headed south for Comanche territory maybe two hours ago. I guess there's not much to do about it now except tell the cavalry. They'll pick him up eventually. This isn't a military matter, Doc. It's my job. Matt, you can't go down there now with all this Indian trouble. I don't tell you how to set bones, Doc. We going after him, Mr. Dillon? I am. You don't have to. I'll go get our saddle pack. Matt, use your head. Maybe if I'd used it before, Bailey wouldn't be dead. should be, Chester. I can't find him none too soon for me. Oh, we sure picked the day to come out here. Yeah, it's hot, all right. Yes, sir. There's somebody following Amos, Chester. What? Yeah, pull up. Let's take a look. See, that's the print of an unshot Indian pony. Well, now, why would an Indian be trailing Amos? I don't know. And why is Amos wandering like he can't make up his mind where to go? For a while, I thought he was heading for the Washita. Now he's veered west. Maybe throw us off, huh? Now he's leaving too plain a trail for that. He doesn't expect anybody to come after him down here. Quite a view from up here, Mr. Dillon. See for a long way. You see, Amos? Nope. I don't see no Indian, neither. Oh, hey, here's something, Mr. Dillon. What? That Indian pony stopped here and stood. Yeah, probably looking out there, watching Amos. And, and then turned off and went that way. Yeah, but running. See how the prints dig in and stretch out? What do you think that means, Mr. Dillon? Probably means trouble, Chester. We better find Amos quick. Come on. I'll be glad when the sun goes down. Careful, Chester. Come up easy on top of this hill. Yes. Reckon we might be getting close. Maybe. Uh-huh. I don't see a thing, Mr. Dillon. He's down there, Chester, making camp. You see that movement in the willows there? Mm-hmm. That'll be his horse. He'll be over by the water. And he sure could have fooled me. Come on, we'll stay behind the hill. We'll circle and quarter and crosswind. Yes, sir. All right, Amos. Sir? No, drop it. Now you just stand there.
give me no fair draw, Marshal. No more than you gave Bailey. I want to take you back to Dodge alive. All right, Chester, come on. Tie the horses and the willows with Amos's. Yes, sir. Now, you just kick that gun over here. Throw the knife in, too. Careful. All right, you can relax now. Figuring to ride tonight? Later, after the horses are rested a couple of hours. Think you can get me back to Dodge, Marshal? I think so. It's Comanche country, you remember. Maybe you're banking too much on that, Amos. Maybe. This is quite a fix you got yourself into, Amos. Is it? Yeah, I'd say so. On one side, you got all the white men hating you. On the other side, I shouldn't think the Comanches would be too fond of you either. Why not? Like Bailey said, I'm most one myself. Yeah, but there were Comanches killed at Coal Creek, too. Some. They must know that you've been scouting for the Bluecoats, huh? Well, it don't matter. They don't hold no grudge against scouts. As long as you scout against their enemies, the Cheyenne or the Apaches or one of the others, but you led the cavalry against your own tribe. I wasn't smart. I ain't worried, Marshal. You're the one ought to be. Maybe. You hate me too, don't you, Marshal? Not exactly. Just trying to understand you. It's a hard choice to turn against your own kind. I'd like to know what makes a man do that. Now, if you knew the way it was. I can remember the day it was like this. It was towards dusk. I left the horses, three of my best, right out front of her father's lodge. Never waited so anxious in all my life. And then he come out and took my horses into his herd. That meant you were accepted, married? And we lived fine. I had a lodge of 14 skins. I brought meat to her family. I took coup. I was respected, loved, and it was good. It was all good. Why'd you leave then? She died, bearing a child. Oh. Amos, that cold creek. Did you lead the cavalry into ambush? I didn't lead them. But I knew. You knew the ambush was there and you didn't warn them, I huh? couldn't. It had just been the other way around. They were my friends, relatives, people I'd lived with. Whatever I did, it had been wrong. So you ran away and did nothing. But a man's got to make his choice, Amos. And by failing to act, you made yours. Maybe... Coming back to Dodge was a mistake. If you'd have stayed out, you might have been taken for dead and forgotten. And now you've gone too far. Killing Bailey, the way you did it. Now, there's no choice now. There's only Dodge and a noose. You ain't got me back to Dodge yet, Marshal. Maybe you ain't going to. What? Huh? Yeah, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. What does he mean, Mr. Dillon? Take a look, Chester, coming over the brow of that far hill there. 
Glory be. All right, come on, get on. Out of sight. It's a war party. And a big one. I say, must be 50 or more. Amos. Comanche's all right. You lose, Marshal. Maybe we all do. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, Chester. Them Comanches don't look so terrible warlike to me, just riding easy like they was out for a breath of air. Circling. They know we're here. If they was to decide to rush us, we wouldn't have a chance. Well, that's one thing we could do something about, Justin. What? Kill the horses. What? Pull them up in the circle and shoot them, then slit their bellies. Oh, my goodness gracious, what for? Those Indian ponies will balk when they smell the blood. That'd stop a charge. We could use the bodies for cover. Oh, but Mr. Dillon, out here without no horses... Well, maybe it won't be necessary. Amos, hmm? do you recognize any of them? Yeah, that one out front on the pie ball. That's Buffalo Tongue. It's my brother-in-law. They've stopped. Yeah. Now we better go get the horses. Oh, wait a minute. You might need your horses. Yeah, sure, but I doubt we'll ever get a chance to use them. Maybe they don't know you're here. You keep out of sight and wait for dark, maybe just hours. or what so. What are you thinking, Amos? I'm thinking about that noose back in Dodge. And I'm thinking you're wrong about them Comanches. That's my wife's brother out there, Marshal. I've rid beside him on many a party. Now, see? He's coming down alone. Well, that's true, Mr. Dillon, he is. Amos, I'm warning Even you. if you're right, it'd be me they're looking for. If they don't even know you're here... No, Amos. Marshal, three men can't stand against 50 commands. All right, It's but... like you said, a man makes a choice. <coughs> Wait. Yeah. Amos, so come back. Mr. Dillon... Keep down, Chester. But, Mr. Dillon... Maybe he's right. That's all we can hope for now. But he's our prisoner. He was our prisoner. Now we'll see. His brother-in-law stopped. He's... Mr. Dillon... Amos, look out. No, no, Mr. Dillon. No. Chester, don't stay down. Never, we can't. It's too late. Our guns won't do Amos any good now. We gotta think about ourselves now. I know that, but just... wait a minute. They're why they're turning away without another look. Mr. Dillon, they don't know about us. They know, but they don't care. We chance that, Chester. Now come on. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Amos? No. No, don't, Marshal. Not yet. It's got to come out, Amos. Here, I'll cut the shaft. No. After. In a minute or so. It won't matter. Marshal. It didn't even bother. It didn't even bother to, to take cool. Mr. Dillon? That air went most clean through his... They're going away. Didn't even seem to notice us. That wasn't a battle, Chester. 
There was an execution. It was awful having to just stand by. Like he said, a man has to make a choice. Yes, sir. Mr. Dillon, what do you mean they didn't even bother to take coup? The scalp. It's the worst possible insult. When an Indian won't even claim his coup or touch the body. Oh. You reckon he knew what might happen? Yeah, I think so, Justin. Well, maybe it was better than the noose. Yeah, maybe it was. All right, come on, Chester, we got things to do. This is William Conrad. As you may know, Gunsmoke is going into its second year on radio. Now, during this time, many of you have written the makers of Chesterfield and L&M Filters, asking them to put Gunsmoke on television, too. Well, here's some good news for you. Gunsmoke is going on TV starting Saturday, September 10th, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, over the CBS television network. If you enjoy our radio shows, I know you'll go for Gunsmoke on TV. Now TV will have an authentic adult western, the Gunsmoke you know. Remember, next week, Gunsmoke Radio at this time, and in three weeks, Gunsmoke TV at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Both brought to you by Liggett & Myers, makers of Chesterfield and L&M Filters. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Ray Kemper and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, Barney Phillips, and Joseph Kearns. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Listen to Gunsmoke again next week, transcribed for L&M Filters. August the 20th, 1955. The name of that episode of Gunsmoke was The Indian Scout. And that featured Lawrence Dobkin in the title title role. He was an interesting character. He was a good actor. Boy, he could play all kinds of uh, individuals. He could play a great psychotic. But he could also play a sheriff. Uh, uh, well, he could play anything. I guess a good actor can do that. He was... Um, not just an actor, though. Uh, when television came along, he did a number of uh, television roles, but he also did a lot of writing and directing. Very well-known television director. 
As a writer, he created the uh, character for the 1974 film, The Life and Time of Grizzly Adams. And then he also was responsible for the television show between 1977 and 1978 on NBC. He also did the closing narration on the landmark television show, The Naked City, that was on from 1958 to 1963. I remember The Naked City so well. That was one of my mom's favorite shows. I don't think my dad so much. My mother loved it. And do you remember the closing comment on each show, the tagline that came in as the show was fading out? See if you remember this. Uh, The reason I'm playing it is this is Lawrence Stopkin talking here. There are eight million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them. This has just been one of them. Man, I remember that so well. Uh, Let's see. He began his directing for television in 1960, and his work in this area included the pilot and uh, also several episodes of The Munsters. (laughs) So he directed the pilot episode of The Munsters. He directed 16 episodes of The Waltons and a whole bunch of other, other shows. I think he died uh, in 2002, if I'm not mistaken. But he left us fairly recently, within about the last 10 or 12 years. Lawrence Stopkin, a real talent, real talented guy. By the way, uh, there in the closing comments, Bill Conrad came in and he said, um, as many of you know, we're just beginning our second year of Gunsmoke. And I thought, what? Gunsmoke premiered on August the 23rd, 1952. So that means that when he did this show, they had done all the shows from 52 to 53, 53 to 54, and 54 to 55. So they were actually beginning their fourth season. Now, he mentions that the television show was going to begin on September 10th. Well, that's correct. It started on September the 10th, 1955. But since Gunsmoke premiered in 52, and this was 55, they'd already completed three complete seasons, uh, and they were starting their fourth season. So I don't know why he said their second season. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Thanks for putting up with me for this uh, last couple of hours here with my runny nose and my coughing and sneezing. Hopefully I did all of that off mic. 
So glad you came along, though. We'll be back again in two weeks. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Remember this, a kiss is still a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say, I love you. I'm that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man, and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time. Goes by